I've been working my way through the book Sabbath as Resistance by Walter Bergman, and I've hit this point where he's talking about the Exodus with Moses, and they're, they're getting close to the promised land, and Moses goes on this big tirade of warning, it seems. And what Bergman tries to pull out, or does pull out, that just kind of struck me, is the change of um, power dynamics from Pharaoh as God to Yahweh as God. Under Pharaoh as God, that system was so much in acquisition. It was so much in taking that your neighbor is your competitor, not someone you care for, but someone you try to best. And so there was no time for rest because you were constantly working. You need to acquire more. You need to do more. And I I spoke of this last week when we read in Exodus that Pharaoh says, you're going to make more bricks. You're going to make them without straw. You're going to produce the same amount as when you had straw. And it's just all this extra work. And yet God, when he gives the Ten Commandments, he specifies that you will use the Sabbath, that you will take part of the Sabbath just as Yahweh, God, has rested. And the land is an inheritance. It's not something that Israel acquired, but it's something that God gave them. And that really is a a strong change in power dynamic and shift in does Israel now need to continue under the Pharaoh mindset of constantly working and acquiring and competing, or do they rest in the inheritance that has been given them? Do they see neighbors as someone who has also inherited this blessing and not as a competitor? And do they take the time to stop and rest just as God did, as the Creator did? And I think that ties in so strongly with this concept of downtime. Because downtime for us, in our understanding of the English language, downtime is what do we do when we're not doing something? And our God calls us to that. Calls us to a place of rest, not of competition and acquisition, but of just enjoying the inheritance we have from our God. And so this week we're going through the concept of trusting the mystery. And, and that's almost a little vague in itself to say trusting the mystery, but that's what we're going through is trusting the mystery, trusting the mystery of prayer, trusting the mystery of God, and trusting the mystery of the Sabbath, the downtime that we are, are called to. Because we don't always have the answer. And I think that's a struggle in our prayer life is that we always assume that God will Uh, give us an answer that we have an understanding of how God's going to work in each and every situation. And yet God is higher than us and above us and doesn't give us the answer. That we are required to trust. That we are required to have faith. And so the main focus of, of this sermon that I want you to come to and understand is this. Prayer is not a matter of method or expertise but trust. Prayer is not a matter of method or expertise, but trust. Mark Iaconelli, who's written this book, Downtime, that we're going through, um, he tells the story of when he was younger and in youth. 
Uh, so a friend invited him to a youth group, and so he went, and it was fun and games and candy and all, all the things that kids love about youth group. And then at the end, the youth leader, it was a, a parent, kind of called all the boys together and was like, okay, we're going to pray. And so it took him a bit to get everybody hushed down, and they're just quiet, kind of in the classic uh, old-school youth room basement of like fluorescent lights and tacky carpets and hard plastic chairs. But they're there doing this youth concept that so many of us know. And the leader begins to pray. And it's a, it's a deep prayer. It's a sincere prayer. And, and Mark just can't help but laugh. He's a junior high kid. He doesn't know what to do with himself. And so he's, he's holding his breath and he's beginning to like pinch his leg so that he, he has something else to focus his mind off. And then eventually he just like busts out with this breath of air that sounds like a deflating balloon. He's just like, and all the other kids just burst out laughing. But the leader is just so wrapped up in the sincerity of this is how you have to pray. This is how we do it. And he just tries to get more bold and, Lord, we pray for these students that they would understand the, uh, the, the sincerity and the seriousness that is prayer and faith. And he's just going, and he just, the kids are gone and they've lost it. And Mark is like, I, I ended up never going back to that youth group. And it's interesting that he points this out because if prayer is this just rigid formula, we're going to lose so many people and we're also going to lose so many of our children because they don't have the attention span. And yet God calls all of us and asks all of us to pray. And, he, and Jesus, uh, as we spoke about last week in Matthew, that uh, he calls the children to come and be with him. And that time spent with Jesus is a form of prayer. And so God calls us to the same thing, that we spend time with him, not just always in this method and expertise way of praying, but that we stop. Mark says this, he says, the power of prayer, if power is the right word, is in its invitation to become unguarded, truthful, and vulnerable before God. I think it's so beautiful. The power of prayer, if power is the right word, is in its invitation to become unguarded, truthful, and vulnerable before God. That's where we need to be. God is inviting us to pray, to have time with him, to have communication and conversation with him. And to do that, we need to let our guards down. To do that, we need to be quiet. To do that, we need to be truthful and vulnerable. And we need to spend time doing it. Not just something that we do and get through, but that we linger in as a conversation, as a moment. The way we do it with our spouses, our kids, our friends. We take the time to listen, to reciprocate, to have a conversation, to let them speak into our lives and not always just send out a demanding list of here's what I want and how things should be. So here's a couple of questions that I wanted to hopefully answer with this sermon is this. How do we invite people to pray? How do we help people discover the life of prayer without making it seem like another formal or unreal strange religious practice? How do we help people pray when silence and prayer feel so odd and, and contrary to the hyperactive rhythms of the culture in which we're formed? 
How do we help people pray when their own interior landscapes can feel awkward and foreign? If people don't like who they are, they don't want to spend time figuring who they are or spending time with God telling them who they are. They just want to move on and numb themselves. And finally, how do we invite people to allow their souls, their minds, and their hearts to be touched by God? I honestly believe that a lot of these can be answered in how do you pray? How do you pray? How are you demonstrating? How are you teaching? How are you experiencing God? We know in Matthew 6, 5 that it says, don't be like the hypocrites that stand in the synagogues and on the streets and and speak so loudly and, and yell so that people hear and see them. And that's not what we're talking about here. This isn't prayer to be seen to exemplify yourself or to be noticed, but this is prayer to teach others. A prayer to let them see how you experience the goodness of God. That's a gift we have. Gifts are meant to be shared. Gifts are meant to be given. And if I can give the gift of demonstrating what a nourishing and peaceful time I have in prayer with the Father, how could I not want to share that with other people? But if I haven't developed that, then what, how I pray is how others learn to pray. Many of us pray out of duty, hardly acknowledging or expecting that God is actually present or responding. The truth, however, is that our trust, not our words, our trust is what allows God to move and breathe within us. We can say a multitude of things, whatever we want, but if we are not trusting that God is listening and willing to respond, then our words are nothing. When we invite people to pray, we are inviting them to turn and acknowledge the presence of God. And in this way, our method soon becomes the message. Do you get that? In in this way, our method soon becomes the message. If the only way people see me pray or the only way I teach them to pray is is to just kind of pray before a meal or to pray before bedtime or just pray recited prayers that I've memorized since childhood, I'm teaching people that that's only how God hears. If I pray only in uh, a declaration of this is what I need and what's wrong in this world, then that is what they're learning. Do I take time to thank God? Do I take time to just appreciate the creation that is this world because there is always something good to see. We call it a silver lining, but there is always something beautiful and amazing to see because God is good and God creates good things. And we are a good creation. Yeah, there's sin, there's heartbreak, there's problems. But we are still created by God and in the image of God, and therefore there is good. Just inviting people to pray in openness and trust communicates something about the nature of God and a person's capacity to participate in Jesus' mission of love. The more we pray with people, the more we, the more we communicate the reality and potential of God within all of life, a deeper understanding and a deeper intimacy 
a greater sense of comfort is established in those who are learning to pray from us. Because our prayers really show a lack of trust when it, it seems to allow no room for God. Let me say that again. Our prayers show a lack of trust when it seems that there's no room for God. Prayer is just a sacred monologue then, rather than a living relationship. Making room for God means allowing silence, patience, solitude, and freedom in prayer. It means there's a sense of leisure, time and space for God to quicken within us. That's an older saying that I I don't think we use that often, but I remember hearing it in my childhood that it was like, God, quicken inside me. Let's let's quicken my spirit. But does that mean that the people depend on themselves? Because the land had provision, they didn't remember that they needed God. They didn't remember that they needed to rest in him. They didn't remember that they needed to trust. They felt that they could carry everything on their own. And when we do that, as we are so prone to do, and our life is full of abundance, but when we do that, We remove God from our prayers. It just becomes something we do. Not something that we anticipate, expect, and find fulfillment in. It's just a duty to perform. There's a story of a pastor visiting a sick woman in the hospital. He thinks he's going in for her last rites, that she's just done So he's praying over her. He reads Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And he's just praying for healing over her. He's like, God, just do something. Bring her through this time. And all of a sudden, the woman jumps up, rips out the tubes and cables and shouts, I'm healed, I'm healed. And she she dances around and, and the pastor just like gasps in shock. And he looks at her, he's like, don't ever do that again. I mean, it's a ridiculous story to say that a pastor would go in and he'd be shocked that she was healed. But I think many of us really get to that point. We pray for healing. We pray for safety. We pray for parking spaces. But we pray for things and we don't expect God to actually show up. And when he does, we're so taken aback. We're like, don't, don't do that. I don't know what to do with this miracle now. I don't know how to handle this because I wasn't prepared for it. I wasn't really thinking you would show up. I just did it because that's what I'm supposed to do. So what do we communicate about the presence of God when we rarely turn our attention to him? Often the message is that we would rather talk about or serve God than actually listen or spend time with God. 
Think about that. Often the message is that we would rather serve God uh, and talk about God than actually listen and spend time with God. It needs to go out and do a ministry. I need to go out and pray for people. I need to do things. Versus just stopping and resting in the presence of God. There's a sense there that God isn't really necessary to the Christian life. And so we kind of begin to pray less and less. And we listen less and less. And over time, prayer and God can become to say something strange. Just an archaic practice. I go to church because that's what you do. Okay, they're doing that prayer time again. Check my phone. Look around the room. See what's going on. Versus fully embodying it. And letting God rest. Silence is so scary to our culture. I don't just mean the North American culture, the Western culture. I mean our church culture. And I, I would be bold enough to say our Parkway culture. Anytime we take moments of silence or there's silence that lingers in our congregation on Sundays, it's, you can feel the tension. It feels a little awkward. People aren't sure what to do with it. And there's a sense of uncomfortableness in silence. So what does it mean to trust God in prayer? It means we don't try to control it. It means we allow freedom in prayer. It means we come to God with patience and open hands. Because without trust, without really trusting God, any spiritual exercises and prayer methods we employ are kind of just useless. Which brings me to Zechariah chapter 7, verses 2 to 12. It says this, Now the people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Rajam Melech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 17 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and you drink, do you not eat and drink for yourselves? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Do you get that? They had been praying for 70 years. Praying and fasting to hear from God. And they sent people to the priest that should be hearing from God the most. And they're like, should we continue to do this? And God spoke. He said, take care of one another. 
Show the love. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against your, another in your heart. And it says they refused. They didn't expect God to answer. They didn't want God to answer in, a, in the way that God did. They had a plan. They wanted to control their prayers. We've been praying for something. God, do it. Make it happen. And God said, no, you need to change your heart. And instead, it says they made it diamond hard. They pushed back against God. They weren't willing to spend time with him. They weren't willing to get past the protocol and let God move them. Which brings me back to where we started. Prayer is not a matter of method or expertise, but trust. Trusting in God. I think one of the most overlooked aspects of prayer is that prayer is a learning process. In prayer, we are learning how to live our lives. We are learning to let go of our sin and fear and and trust divine love. Prayer is a place of deep transformation. It is a school of spiritual living in which God serves as teacher. God tutors tutors us each unequally in prayer. Sometimes God draws us to prayers of intercession where we are praying for people, for things that we are getting right in there. Other times we find ourselves filled with prayers of confession and healing. God, I need to get this off my chest. I I need to change who I've been. I need to fix what I've done and just God be there and heal and change. Other times prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude spill out of us. I remember the first time I went snowboarding in BC. I went to the highest mountain I could in Whistler. And I got partway down the hill and I just stopped. I just stopped to take it in and be like, this is incredible. And I had to pray. God, I have never seen anything like this. I have never breathed in anything like this. And it's just a prayer of joy and thanksgiving for the creation that God has given us to care for and live in. And then I was silent because there are yet other moments when God calls us to be silent and attentive. To see what God's doing, what he's saying. Romans 8 26 to 27 says this, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. If you don't know what to pray, great. That's all the more reason to spend time in prayer. He who searches hearts 
knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. God is still speaking into you and through you. He will inspire you to prayer. But if you don't know what to pray, take a moment of listening and let God's Spirit speak through you. When we engage people in prayer, we trust that each of them has a prayer that he or she is praying. And although they might not be conscious of those prayers, because whether they are raised in religious faith or not, people understand and instinctively they get to this point that the human need is there to turn to the heavens and appeal for help, for guidance, for justice. I know when I spent time away from faith myself, like I grew up in the church and I walked away because I said this isn't for me. When I got to points of fear or hurt, the first thing I did was I turned back to prayer. Every time there's some sort of global catastrophe, the first thing that happens is people turn to the church and to prayer. We pray because we can't help but seek to connect with something more, something larger, something that responds and powers, inspires, and justifies. And honestly, if we are already in that practice, in that rhythm, in that position, in, in that comfort of prayer, how, how much more potent is that experience going to be when true strife and struggle happen in our lives? There won't be a learning process to get comfortable again in it. There won't be uh, an onboarding point where we're like, how do I do this? What do I do? But that we're already there and we can seek deeper and more intentional moments with God. That's why downtime is so important. That's why Sabbath is so important. Because it teaches us to make a pattern of trusting and communicating and getting close with God. The reality is that our images of God will affect the way we pray with people. If we don't trust that God is available and responsive to our prayers, then we will find lots of other pressing activities to engage in. How often have you said, how often have I said, absolutely, I'll pray for you. And then you never do. Or you pray after the fact and you're like, you know what? God is outside of time. So if I pray now, my prayer can actually go to the beginning of this when the person asked for prayer uh, because God's outside of time. So someone asks, I'm going for surgery, pray for me. And you're like, crap, that, that surgery was six hours ago. I'm going to pray now because I haven't heard from them yet. So I believe that my prayer is still affecting uh, that proper timeline. But if we just actually believed and took the time, what more does that show? that we end any phone call with, hey, can we just pray right now? If we end interactions with, hey, can we just pray right now? Leaving prayer as an exotic practice is not best left for nuns or monks. Prayer should be as common to us as breathing familiar to us as our language. I've said it before to our youth, and I know I've mentioned it on Sundays, but I believe Christians should be bilingual. We should speak in the language of prayer just as easily as we speak in English. We should communicate with God and the Spirit just as easily as we communicate with each other. 
If we're going to trust in the mystery, we must understand that God is a mystery because Jesus, this is Colossians 1, 15 to 20, Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, and that in everything he might be preeminent. For him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And if that whole tirade, that whole paragraph isn't a big mystery to you, then you have a deeper understanding than I. To speak of God as the firstborn of the, or Jesus, the firstborn of the dead, the image of the invisible, the head of the church, that things are made in him and through him. There's so much complexity in that and mystery that we have to trust that God is in control. We don't have the answer. And part of the work of ministry, and this is your ministry, my ministry to everyone, is remembering over and over that the people in front of us are mysteries. They carry within them the divine spark, the sacred image of God. The psalmist says it this way, you have made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. And so with that, With that understanding, we need to trust the mystery of God. That he has purpose and intention for us. That he connects with us. But we have to give him time to do that. We have to give him time to speak into us. It is God who teaches and directs the prayers of people. It is God who teaches and directs the prayers of people. It is the Holy Spirit that kindles prayer. And it is Jesus who shows us how to pray. It's Jesus who shows us how to pray. Continually looking to the Father, taking time away from the world, from people, and showing us the beautiful example that prayer can be. Trusting in the the mystery and finding downtime. So remember this, prayer is not a matter of method or expertise, but trust. Trust in the Lord. Take this time of reflection as Becky plays and, and think upon your prayer life. What does it look like? The prayer practice I've chosen for today is called Lectio Divina. And the concept in it is that you are taking a portion of scripture and praying through it that you are slowing yourself down to hear what God is saying to you. It could be a word. 
could be a phrase. But the idea is that we use scripture as something that is living and that God is inspired in and is a part of it. And so there's four steps to this. Lectio, Medicio, Oratio, and Contemplatio. All Latin. And they basically mean read, reflect, respond, rest. So what we're going to do is I've chosen 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn to it and read through it yourself to see the words. If you don't, then I'm going to read through it. But we're going to read through it four times. The first time is just that. It's a reading. Just to hear the words spoken. Maybe something will stand out then. Maybe it won't. The second time, we're going to pause afterwards and then read this a little slower, but it's, again, a reflection this point. Is there a word that stands out and speaks to you? Oratio is respond, so that's our third reading. After the third reading, respond in prayer or journaling. Do some sort of action in the way that God is directing you. And then the fourth reading, contemplatio, ends with just rest. We take a moment to hear anything. I just rest in this moment, in this prayer time with the Father. So 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. For I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. 
as I read it slower this time or as you read it slower. Take time to reflect. You haven't heard these words for the first time now. This is the second time. They, they can begin to imprint. You can see more. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In this third reading, I want you to respond afterwards to journal or to pray. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers, and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 
Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist in its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was like a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. In this final reading, we rest. Just to enjoy the presence of God and this time set aside for him. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. 
I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Father, we pray you speak into this time that we have set aside for you. That we would have heard you. That you would have felt closer and more accessible than before. Give us opportunities to schedule into our lives moments like these. Set aside to listen to you from your word and from your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.